if y'all would like to follow along in the scripture reading, open your Bibles to the front of the book. As a matter of fact, it's the history of the world and mankind in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And considering the subject topic, unfortunately, it's only chapter three that we need to look this evening. Beginning in verse one, Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree as that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As we mentioned this morning, this evening, we're going to begin a sermon series that's going to, Lord willing, last through the end of February on Sunday nights called Not Just for Kids. These are lessons from the Old Testament that If you grew up going to Bible class, you would know some of these lessons because they're very, very commonly taught, rightly so, in our kids' Bible classes. But maybe if you didn't grow up going to Bible class, or maybe the church is new to you, maybe you're not as familiar with some of these stories, some of these Bible lessons. And so we're going to start this evening talking about Genesis 3. If you haven't already opened your Bible there, please do so. The first sin, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. We'll get to that in just a moment. Just to kind of whet your appetite or repulse you, as the case may be, I don't know. Um, we're going to talk about in future lessons, Cain and Abel. We're going to talk about uh, Noah and the flood. We're going to discuss in in future lessons, the Tower of Babel, and then moving onward from there, a number of other Old Testament stories. And so these are historical accounts that God has given to us, and he's given them to us for a reason. And one of the best things we can do is go back to the beginning and listen to what God says about who we are, where we come from, why we're here, and most importantly, who he is. With no further ado, let's talk about the first sin. I read a a statement one time that has always resonated with me. The writer said, the only objective moral evil in this world is sin. There are many circumstances that we don't like, that we don't enjoy, poverty, famine, those kinds of things, sickness. We don't enjoy those things, but those things are not inherently, objectively evil. They're not anything we enjoy, but they're not evil in and of themselves. Sin 
is evil. Turning against God and against God's will is evil. And in Genesis 3, what you read is the account of the very first sin. Now, if you've read Genesis 1 and 2, you know the Bible tells us God created the world and God created man and woman. Their names are Adam and Eve. And he places them in a garden called the Garden of Eden. And as we start our lesson this evening, it's important to notice some of the things that God provided in the garden. What did God give to Adam and Eve in that place? In Genesis 2, 7, the Bible tells us that God formed man out of the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Life is a gift from God. You and I don't have the right to just take life whenever we feel like it. We don't have the right to decide when life should start, when life should stop. It's something that God has given us. It's a blessing from him. Work is something that God provided in the garden. Look in your Bible at Genesis 2.15. This is good for parents who'd like to talk to their young people, their kids at home about working. It says, the Lord God took the man, Genesis 2.15, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God gave us work to do before sin came into the world. We don't work because of sin. Our work just got harder because of sin. We'll talk about the consequences of Adam's sin in just a few moments this evening, but we were working, human beings were given work to do before sin entered the world. You were made to work. You were made to have something to do. Not only that, but in the Garden of Eden, God gave man and woman a law. He said, of every tree you may eat, I've given you fruit of all kinds and varieties. Incidentally, God didn't have to do that. God did not have to give us apples and oranges and bananas and all the wonderful variety of food that he gave, but he did because he loves his creation. And he said, you can eat all of these fruits, all of these trees you can eat from, but one tree you cannot, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of that tree lest you die. Now, continuing, the Bible goes on to say that God gave Adam companionship. It is not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create a helper suitable for him. God performed the first surgery in the Garden of Eden. He caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He took a rib out of Adam's side and he formed woman and he brought her to Adam and they became the first marriage. God created marriage in the Garden of Eden as well. We don't have the right to redefine what marriage is. We don't have the right to say how marriage ought to be constituted and who is eligible to be married. We don't have the right. God is the one who is the architect of marriage. It goes back to creation itself, the Garden of Eden itself. What else did God give man in the garden? He allowed an evil influence. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the passage begins by saying, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And it begins to tell about the temptation of Eve and then later of Adam. Those were some of the things that were there in the Garden of Eden. But if you just stop and ponder, I've, I've imagined this and I just can't conceive of it. It was a world without regret. It was a world where nobody ever thought about their past and thought, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish that I had said that better or that I had thought differently in that circumstance. Nobody had any regret. Nobody had any mistrust. It was innocence in the purest, richest sense of the word. 
Adam and Eve were innocent. That's the way God created them. When God created everything in Genesis 1 and even into the first part of Genesis 2, he said, it is good. And when he finished his creation in Genesis 1.31, he said, it is very good. That's the way God created this world. It's the way he created us. It was his intention originally. So those are the things that are provided in the garden. Adam and Eve, they have work to do. They have companionship. They have a law. They have a relationship with God. They have all these wonderful, amazing, beautiful blessings. And all they have to do is obey. It's all they have to do. The only objective moral evil, the only evil, really objectively, intrinsically evil in this world is sin. And it enters the world in Genesis 3. Let's notice, first of all, the enemy. The enemy that comes on the scene. In Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. The Bible calls our enemy in this passage a serpent. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, it gets repeated. We'll see that in just a few moments. But Paul talks about that crafty serpent who tempted Eve in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It's an animal, and for whatever reason, he was able to speak. He was able to tempt Eve. The devil takes possession somehow of this animal and and is able to use him to, to talk to Eve in this circumstance. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. He is still the same enemy today that went and tried to tempt and deceive Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He's called in other passages a dragon. You think about fearful images. You think about things that would cause concern to us. Revelation 12 verses 3 and verse 9 calls him the dragon, the great red dragon. The Bible calls him a lion. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 specifically proud people. Did you know that? People who are full of themselves. People who think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Romans 12 verse 3. He's seeking whom he may devour. He's a lion. He is called the evil one, Matthew 13, 19. Jesus calls him that. And Jesus also calls him in John 8, 44, a murderer and the father of lies. How do you know when the devil is lying? His mouth is moving. That's how you know. And he is an enemy. And his whole purpose in life, his whole purpose for existence is to deceive and to destroy people because he hates God, he hates what God represents, and he hates the people that God created. And he's trying to destroy you, he's trying to destroy your life, your family, your home, and everything good in your life. And we cannot act like in this life that somehow we don't have an enemy. And we can't live our lives ignorant of the fact that he's present in our lives. In Revelation 12, verse 9, John just kind of summarizes all those names. He says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, going back to the creation in Genesis 3. He's called the devil. He's called Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Your enemy is powerful. Don't underestimate him. And don't think that somehow he doesn't know who you are and that he doesn't know what tempts you and that he doesn't know how to get to you. He is crafty, he is cunning, he is an enemy of mankind. Always has been from the very beginning. As you look at Genesis chapter three, verse one, the serpent who's crafty comes to Eve and there's a strategy here. 
After all, Adam and Eve, they've got it really good. Nobody has ever had it better than Adam and Eve did. Nobody. They have a life that is free from suspicion, free from strife, free from anger, free, all these kinds of things. And here comes the serpent in his craftiness. And here's the strategy he brings. Number one, he disguises himself. There's been a lot of ink spilled and I can't answer the question, why did God allow the devil to use a serpent to tempt Eve? I don't know. I know that that's what the devil did. And when this serpent came and began to speak to Eve, for whatever reason, whatever existed in the Garden of Eden, she apparently doesn't think it's strange. So he comes to her and he begins to talk to her. He's disguised himself. If you could see the devil for what he really is, you'd recoil in terror. And so, the Bible talks about the devil disguising himself even today. It talks about him transforming himself into an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 16, about him having messengers who also, they, they look very religious, they look very devout, and yet they are servants of the evil one, the liar, the murderer, the father of lies. He disguises himself. That's one of his strategies. Don't believe everything you hear just because the person telling you seems reputable. What does the Bible say? Search the scriptures, see whether these things are so, Acts 17 verse 11. Not only does he disguise himself in his strategy though, as you look at Genesis chapter three, verse one, the Bible says that he questions God's word. Listen, he says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, he's starting a conversation, but the question is about what God said. Did God really say that, Eve? Is that really what he told you and Adam? Let's let's think about this for a minute. One of the devil's best strategies is to start questioning God's word and implicitly saying, you know, God's holding out on you. God is... God is holding back some things that would really be good for you. He's questioning God's word. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 and Deuteronomy 12 verse 32, do not add to, do not take away from the commandments of God, the word of God. We're to listen to what he said. Did God really say this, Eve? You know, preachers in bygone generations I love to read their sermons. They're some of the most creative, some of the wonderful, wonderful thoughts. Preachers in bygone generations used to preach sermons that went like this. Has not God said, question mark. And then their points would be, has not God said, or has God really said that there's just one church? Has God really said that Jesus is the only way that anyone could ever be saved? How about this? Has God really said that he created the world in six literal days? If you're reading Genesis, that's what he said. And whatever other evidence you're gonna try and use to ascertain the answer to that question, you better take that evidence into account and take it seriously. Has God said this? That's Satan's strategy. Has he said? He questions God's word. What else does he do? He denies God's word. Eve responds and she says, you know, God told us this and this and this, and Eve doesn't get it exactly right, it appears. Eve says, yeah, God said that we should not eat of any, uh, of, um, excuse me, in verse two, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. 
And she adds that. That's not what it says in Genesis 2.17. And, and a lot of people have surmised, well, maybe Eve is making some rules and establishing some boundaries where God is not, neither shall you touch it lest you die. However it is, Eve responds to the serpent. She says, no, we're not supposed to have anything to do with that tree. And then in verse four, look at the strategy. The serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die. He just denies it. It's not gonna be the way it is. I know, I know Eve that you think that's what God intended. That's what he said. But what he said is gonna come to pass is not really gonna come to pass. There are patterns in Genesis 3, brethren, that are resonant even today. There are people that will look at the plain meaning of Scripture and they will say, it doesn't mean that. That's not really what God intended. And again, the implication, Satan, his implication in trying to tempt us is to say, somehow, let my will be done. God is holding out on me. God doesn't want me to be happy. How many times have you heard somebody say something like that? You know what really God wants for me? He wants me to be happy. He wants my, my uh, comfort and my wealth and my welfare. And those are the things that God really wants. You will not surely die, Eve. That's not really gonna happen. God knows if you eat this fruit, you're gonna be like God. You're gonna be wise. You're gonna be able to discern good and evil. You're gonna know what God knows. May my will be done. That's the idea. He denies God's word. That's not really what it says. And then the strategy, he substitutes his own lie. Verse five, here's what you're really gonna have. God knows if you eat the fruit of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God and you will know good and evil. Substitutes his own lie. It has always been this way, brethren. This is how the devil works. He works in the area of what God has said. He's not trying to tempt you to do things that are irrelevant to the scriptures. He's trying to tempt you to do things against what this book teaches. That has always been his way. That has always been his method. That is his strategy. In the New Testament, Paul says, I'm afraid that the serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts, Christians, you will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says, we should not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his devices or his designs, some translations say. We are not supposed to live our lives oblivious to the fact that we have an enemy and that he is strategic in how he's approaching us. We are to use our minds and our hearts to submit to the will and the word of God. That's all God wanted from Adam and Eve. He wanted them to listen and obey. That's all he wants from you, to listen and to obey. That's it. And his strategy is to knock you off that mountain, to knock you off that post. Next, as you look at Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, uh, Eve is talking to the serpent specifically. It doesn't mention Adam until later. The sin itself. Let's read verses six and seven together. Genesis three, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, I mean, she saw it. She thought, you know, God probably really is holding out on me. I, I probably have not been told the full story. I probably could get so much more if I just circumvent, if I just transgress, if I just go beyond what God told me to do. 
she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes, verse seven, of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know what sin is? It's the only objective moral evil that exists in this world. It is inherently evil. It is transgressing God's law. Stepping over a boundary. That's what transgress means, to step over a boundary. 1 Timothy 2.14 comments on this. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Incidentally, there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he's talking about women's role. And one of the things he says is this all goes back to creation. This is not just a cultural thing that's happening in 1 Timothy 2. This goes back to this first event. The woman was deceived. And part of the reason why women have the role they have is because of what Eve did. That's what he's saying. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Oh, Adam did it too. But the woman's the one that's speaking to the devil at this point. Romans 4 verse 15, the law brings wrath and it says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's an interesting statement. Sin is evil. You want to know what's evil in this world? Sin is evil. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about murder or whether we're talking about horrible, horrible things that people do to one another or whether we're talking about little white lies. It's evil. It's wrong. It is a transgression of God's law. Let me illustrate. I've used this illustration before in Bible classes. Maybe you'll recognize it. This is how God sets up the world for us. God places us happily in his world. We're breathing his air, we're eating his food, we're living off of his provisions. And God gives us in this world work to do. He gave Adam and Eve work to do before they had ever sinned, didn't he? He gives us work to do. And he also gives us this boundary, this circle around us. It's his law. He says, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. Don't transgress and go beyond and, and involve yourself in this. Don't cross this line. And it's human nature to be curious about what's over the line. It's human nature to look over that fence and to say, I wonder what would happen if I ate of the fruit. I wonder what would happen if... I did this or I did that, that God says I can't do. I wonder what would happen. And brethren, what the Bible tells us from start to finish is this. God has given us a lifetime of challenge and work. If we will just get busy in his kingdom, if we'll just be about the, the process of, of giving ourselves to good works, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, there is nothing that should distract us from doing that. But what if I cross over? What if I do what God says I shouldn't do? To transgress, to go past that circle is what the Bible calls sin. To take the fruit and eat it. That's what the lady did. That's what Eve did. And then she gave some to her husband and he took and ate it as well. That's what sin is. It's a transgression of going beyond God's law. Sin always has unintended and unforeseen effects. Sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you planned to stay, and harms you far more than you ever thought possible, always. Even the stuff you think is private, just between me and God, it is doing tremendous damage to you, to your soul, and to your relationships with others. It's the way sin is. It always has unintended, unforeseen effects, always. 
as you look at Genesis 3 and what happens in verses 6 and 7, their eyes were opened. The moment they ate the fruit, there was an, an immediate loss of innocence. I'm fascinated that the Bible says the first thing they recognized about themselves was that they were without clothing. First thing they recognized. And the first thing they did was to go find fig leaves and sew them together. You know why we wear clothing? We wear clothing because of sin. Because we recognize that public nakedness is a shameful thing. We recognize that. And this is one of the teachings that you start to find throughout the rest of the Bible, Old Testament and New. It's a shameful thing to expose yourself, to reveal yourself in inappropriate ways in a public way. It's a, it's a shameful thing. It is associated in the Old Testament with idolatry and with uh, the, the worship of, of uh, demons. It's associated with captivity. It is a shameful thing to be exposed. And Adam and Eve, even though it appears there's only two of them, they're ashamed. And so the first thing they do is sow fig leaves for themselves. There's a lesson there. There's something we ought to pay attention to. Heard a lady say one time, and I've always thought this was helpful. When you're going to your closet to put on your clothes in the morning, there's a difference between dressing attractively and dressing seductively. And everybody knows where that line is. Everybody does. When we go to our closet and we decide what I'm going to wear today, is this seductive? Is this exposing things that should not be? They understood they were ashamed. Not only that, there was a desire to hide. In verse eight and following, we're gonna see in just a moment, Adam and Eve decided that the right thing to do for them was to cover their bodies and then to go hide behind a tree somewhere because they did not wanna see God face to face. They didn't wanna have this relationship with God anymore because they were ashamed of what they'd done. Sin always has unintended, unforeseen effects. Guilt. Guilt is a feeling of having violated a law or a standard. It's a feeling. I violated, I've done something wrong. The, the rules said this and I broke the rules. That's guilt. Shame. It's a sense of violating who I am. I wear my family name and I don't want to bring shame upon my family's name or I'm really concerned about my reputation, about what people think of me. And when I do something that causes people to think less of me, the result is shame. Not that I've necessarily violated a law or standard, but I've done something that's lowered my esteem in the eyes of others. That's shame and guilt and shame. And by the way, you think about their marriage, Adam and Eve, all of a sudden now in their marriage, there is suspicion, there is blame, when Adam talks to God, he says, this woman that you gave me, she's the one that caused this to happen. All of a sudden, they've got marriage problems. Why? Because of sin. The sin that we commit, even today, it always has these effects that just ripple out from what we've done and they keep going and they impact others that we don't even know. There's a confrontation. As you look at verses eight through 13, Adam and Eve, they're hiding from God and God comes to seek them out. And this starts another pattern that you read throughout the rest of the Bible. Man is trying to hide from God. Man's not seeking after God. So God comes seeking after man. 
That is a theme throughout the rest of the Bible. God comes and initiates salvation. He initiates his plan. He decides that he's going to take the initiative. He's going to take the first step and he is going to provide a savior, a redeemer, someone to come and to accept the burden of sin caused by man. But God takes the first step. In Romans chapter 3, verse, 20 and tw- or verse uh, 10 and 11, the Bible says, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. That's what it says. But Jesus says in Luke 19, 10, he says, I, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so as you look at Genesis chapter three and verse eight, the Bible says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and he starts to ask just a series of questions and watch these questions. I'm gonna put them on the screen. It says in verse nine, Adam and Eve, where are you? And then who told you that you were naked? Wasn't me. And then have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then what is this that you have done? Did God need Adam to tell him the answer to those questions? God knew what they'd done. He knew the moment they did it. He didn't have to come searching for them in the garden to find out what they had done. God knows everything. He knows what's going on in your heart and mind. He knows the moment we decide to sin. So question, why did he ask all these questions? Here's another Bible theme. When we sin, God wants us to come clean about it. God wants us to look at ourselves objectively and to recognize and to acknowledge that we have transgressed, that we have wronged him, that we have violated his will. Confession, admitting, and then being poor in spirit. That's the way Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the poor in spirit are the people who are saying, God, I took of the fruit and I ate it. And I am so sorry. I need somebody to save me because I can't do it myself. God comes and he confronts Adam because God loves Adam and God loves Eve. And he asks these questions because he's wanting Adam to say what God already knows. The Bible tells us in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants us to acknowledge it. He confronts Adam. Adam and Eve own up to what they've done and then God pronounces penalty. The first sin. Even if nobody else after Adam and Eve took the fruit, even if nobody else ever sinned, Jesus would have still come. But why? Jesus still would have died on that cross for them. Why? I mean, all they did was eat a fruit. All they did was pluck it from the tree and it looked good and the logic of the devil sounded good and they, they just ate the fruit. Why would Jesus do that? Because the cross shows us how ugly and hideous sin is. That's what the cross does. 
And even if nobody else had ever sinned, this sets in motion a chain of events that God is going to bring about and culminate in his son coming into the world and suffering and dying, having lived an innocent life, himself never having sinned. Why would God do that? Because sin is reprehensible. You and I, we see sin every day. We see it in our own lives. We see it in other people's lives. And if you don't see it in those places, turn on Netflix or turn on the news. And it's everywhere. And we, we laugh at it. We're entertained by it. We, we excuse it and rationalize it and think, this is not a big deal. This is not really, co-. Jesus had to die for all that. And he would die again. If it was just that one sin, if it was just the eating of the fruit, he would have come and he would have died because he loves Adam so much. And when you and I think, you know, God doesn't care about me, you got to listen to these passages here. There's penalties. There are judgments that God exercises. And as you look at this passage, notice this. The serpent himself was cursed in verse 14 and 15. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. One Bible scholar wrote, it appears that maybe the serpent was walking upright before, and now on his belly he goes. I don't know what all that means. I just know this is what the Bible tells us happened. The serpent is cursed. And then it says in verse 15, now we're talking more to the devil than the actual animal serpent. It says in verse 15, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When it's got a reference there to the woman's offspring, he's talking ultimately about Jesus and what he's coming to do. Even back in Genesis chapter three, even back in the garden, God already has in his mind how he's going to solve this unsolvable problem. The serpent's cursed. Ladies, verse 16, it's Eve's fault. I'm sorry. This is what she did. Eve took the fruit and ate of it. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. There seems to be in verse 16, the intimation as well that God is placing man as the head. This is a Bible teaching. Man is the head of the family and that woman will want to rule, but this is not her place. This is not her role. But especially the pain in childbirth is increased. Then God cursed, interestingly, the ground. Look at verse 17. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I suspect that in the Garden of Eden, all Adam had to do was tend and keep and maybe prune a few branches and things like that. But now, now he's got seasons and he's got to sow and he's got to, he's got to make sure that he's cultivating the crops and the harvest and he's got to make sure that he's tending things. And it's a hard by the sweat of your brow kind of life that Adam's got to live from now on. Many, many years ago, the church where I was worshiping up in Tyler, I was a teenager. We were building a new church building in the same town. And we were out and, you know, cause the men of the congregation, we, we felt like we could do something for the, for the site. And so we went out to have a clean up work day. <laughs> and the preacher was an older man, loved it very much. 
he was out there and he had sweated through his t-shirt about 10 minutes into the workday. And he was, he was saying, oh, brethren, Adam got us into a lot of trouble. I'm telling you, it's always stuck in my head every time I read that verse. Yeah, Adam did get us in a lot of trouble. By the sweat of your brow shall you earn your bread. We do hard work. This life is hard because of the sin of Adam and Eve. It's a hard life to live. Just is. Man will eventually die, verse 19, from dust you were formed and to dust you shall return. They were separated from God spiritually, but they're ultimately going to be separated from their souls because of the fact that they ate and they're not able to eat of the tree of life anymore that was in the garden of Eden. And then in verses 23 and 24, they're cast out of the garden and God makes sure that they cannot return to the garden. He does not want them to have access to that tree of life anymore. The penalty. There are people, religious people, your religious neighbors, probably many of them, if not most, who believe that you also inherit Adam's sin. That is not true. Sin is a choice that you make, that I make. Sin is something that you and I decide to do. We look at the fruit and we say, that looks good to me, and we eat the fruit. We do not inherit guilt. We do not inherit sin from Adam, but we inherit a lot of consequences because of what he did, and that's the way sin is. You think you're just doing something for you, and what happens is everybody else around you ends up suffering tremendously because of the choices you're making. Sin is evil, it is ugly, it is reprehensible, It is so bad that the only way God could deal with it would be to send his only son to die so that you and I can be delivered from what we've done. You talk about a passage that's not just for kids. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, the first sin, a lot to think about. Don't ever forget you have an enemy and don't ever forget you have a God who loves you enough to send his son to die for you. Thanks for listening this evening. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation because you want to put on Christ in baptism, or if we can pray for you, whatever your need is this this evening, won't you come make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.